episode 451 of the Cyber Law Podcast, for lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or really even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup today, Winona DeSombre Bernson, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and recently published in Lawfare, and Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Dimitri, the big story of the week, I guess, I'm a little skeptical, was the executive order and then the joint statement by a bunch of Democratic countries about restricting spyware. Can you give us a feel for what the the Biden administration is doing here? Sure. Well, this has been a long time coming, obviously, after the NSO Pegasus scandals of the last few years. There's been a push to really start first with restricting U.S. procurement and allied procurement of spyware software that is being sold to countries that don't have the best human rights track record that either start tracking U.S. citizens, and the administration has revealed that at least on 50 occasions you've had this type of spyware being used by foreign actors to track U.S. citizens and also being used to track dissidents and activists and journalists in other countries. And this is something that I think is really more of a signaling than, than, than real impact because the reality is that with companies like NSO, for example, the U.S. wasn't a big procurer. There were some attempts at contracts with the FBI that, that I don't think ever actually went through or were very small if they did. And the reality is that when the U.S. intelligence community, U.S. law enforcement needs that type of capability, they usually go to domestic companies, domestic contractors that are pretty restrictive in terms of who they do business with and try to avoid the type of moral dilemmas that NSO seems to have been putting themselves into on a daily basis. So it's good signaling, it's attempt to kind of establish norms for these types of industries, but I don't think it's necessarily gonna stop Israel from continuing to do spyware diplomacy, trying to use these sorts of tools to build better relations with all types of autocrats in their region and elsewhere, or potentially even other countries where the spyware is starting to proliferate. For sure, this isn't gonna stop Russia and China from selling these tools and using the tools as a kind of spyware diplomacy, right? You can't buy this from the Americans. You can't get it from the Americans because they don't really trust you, but you can get it from us because we do. And in fact, I think the Iranians now are getting a lot of tools from the Russians. That's right. So there'll be other countries. And again, I wouldn't put put it past Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel continuing to do this. Yes, NSO has been crippled, but there are, there are other companies in Israel that are stepping into the void. And look, you know, if, if MBS calls BB and asks for help, do you really think he's going to say no when dangled the prospect of better relations or establishment of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel? It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Winona, you had a long article about why you didn't think export controls was really a great way to control spyware. Do you think that the executive order does a better job of it than export controls by itself? Yeah. So 
That's a, a layered question, right, Stuart? And so my op-ed lays out kind of the privatized spyware and cyber mercenary landscape and then talks about export control specifically, mostly because prior to this executive order and Summit for Democracy, there really weren't as many levers that the U.S. was trying to pull in the space. I made a couple of recommendations about clear statements on what a responsible cyber mercenary looks like, what good and bad government and use looks like, and whether or not cyber mercenaries were a counterintelligence issue, mostly because people in this space tend to stay the same whereas companies change, right? And I think that the executive order and the Summit for Democracy together actually do make a start on all of those recommendations. Like Dimitri, I'm also fairly skeptical about the use of a domestic policy lever to solve an international problem. But, you know, the executive order clearly states what a responsible, you know, in air quotes, cyber mercenary looks like, although it's a super high bar for any company that isn't based in the U.S. of the Five Eyes. The Summit for Democracy, I think, also published guiding principles on what responsible end use looks like, too. Although, of course, depending on what country you are and whether you signed off or not could have uh, varying implications. And then given that ODNI is the primary vehicle for doing that sort of due diligence for U.S. domestic procurement, it actually might be possible that as uh, the program starts to potentially cover other parts of the market, some of those mechanisms solve the counterintelligence issue because, you know, in an ideal world, ODNI, or rather the wire I see, is uh, tracking the founders behind the companies on top of the companies themselves. But of course, that's kind of further out and different standards need to be held for, you know, non-end-to-end spyware companies, which again was the really narrow scope of this executive order. Yeah. So by focusing on end-to-end, they basically said, we don't have to worry about all those people who keep moving around behind the corporate veil, even though this is such a talent-focused field that anybody with talent in this field can get another job at another company in 20 minutes and will if that company looks like it's having trouble. Yeah, I I have to say this feels to me exactly like the moral panic that, in fact, the same kinds of people were peddling to us about the vulnerabilities equity process. There has to be an equities process because these vulnerabilities are being stored by the intelligence community and they put us all at risk and they need to to fix them instead of hoard them. And And there have not been any new zero days since we've announced that process. Exactly. All zero days have been solved. It's it's like (laughs) they they got an announcement that there was a policy and the policy sounded more or less okay. And now nobody's paying any attention. I suspect this is the case as well, that it doesn't really change that much. I mean, Five Eyes agencies had enough good hacking tools that they didn't need to go to people they didn't trust, and they shouldn't go to people they don't trust. That's a kind of obvious statement in the executive order. And the ability to influence the behavior of others is, you know, very, very modest, and unless we're talking about picking on Israel. Israel <laughs> is the, the one case where this could create problems for the government. Sure. I I just want to push back a little bit though, Stuart, because it's not just that it's a people problem, right? Like it's a a talent issue, but it's also a poor business decisions and lack of due diligence issue. Like the end-to-end problem, I think, is the focus of this EO because of all of the different ways to provide capabilities to governments. This one is basically like, here's the end-to-end SaaS product, signals intelligence in a box. You don't even need to put together you know, the different exploit chains or combine that with the operational aspect and the spyware. Here you go, have fun. And I think that that's what the executive order specifically is trying to target. Okay, the most, so you think, you think um, it's aimed concerning. at script kitty nations. 
I, I think in some aspects, yes. Just taking this part of the market and saying this is probably not it. This is not a great, not a great signal that we want to be sending that this is okay. So we're going to take this end-to-end piece and consider it as a, a large problem, and we're going to set that standard. All right. And you think the Europeans are really going to get out of this business? No. And I think we have a couple of stories on that, right? Like the Spanish contractor that Google Tag called out earlier this week, right? So Veristin, I think, was the uh, Spanish spyware vendor that Google Tag said was using an exploit chain to target UAE or Italy and uh, various parts of the world. So you know, Spain is a consumer and producer of spyware, and the Spanish government has also used Pegasus before to target Catalan independence leaders. So for a lot of these countries, especially if they're both a consumer and a producer, and they're not necessarily in that end-to-end market, it might just be business as usual. And I believe that Germany did not actually sign up to that statement in the Summit of, of, of Democracies on, on the spyware, and obviously they have several major spyware companies there. Yeah, yeah and it's and, weird and they're big Spain users. So, uh, <laughs> and they would say, well, we use it consistent with our constitution. It's not like the U.S. doesn't use this. These are all tools that are used by democracies, and they just they would just argue they're using them consistent with the rule of law. Okay, so let's let's move on to actually a bunch of news that actually was potentially pretty significant, and that's in chips industrial policy. Dimitri, there was a lot of activity in the last week on U.S. and China industrial policy on chips. There was. So the probably the biggest announcement that very few paid attention to was that Japan has finally announced that they are aligning itself with the U.S.-China export control policy that was released back in October and will restrict provision of chip-making equipment to companies in China, particularly chip-making equipment at so-called advanced nodes. This was a huge, huge effort by the administration to bring both Japan and Netherlands on board, the other two major providers of equipment, and obviously a big concern to U.S. companies that have been restricted from providing equipment to China, but then complaining that other countries were continuing to do the same thing, namely Japan and, and Netherlands. So big deal. It looks like China is putting significant pressure on Japan now and may even retaliate in other ways, like provision of rare earths, for example, to Japan. They've threatened to cut that off in the past. So this is one of the levers they obviously continue to have. But this is all in an effort to restrict the ability of China's semiconductor industry to grow and compete with the United States, particularly in the crucial areas of AI, as well as other advanced chips that could be used in their weapon systems in the event of conflict with the U.S. We want to make sure that they have limited access to advanced technologies. The other thing that we saw is other types of retaliation from China in response to this ongoing semiconductor restriction pressure. And in particular, they found that Micron, one of the big chip-making companies, particularly in the memory space, has still significant business in China. And they've launched a cybersecurity product review for Micron, trying to say that they don't think that Micron memory is secure. Micron's stock has fallen quite a bit on Fridays. And, and because on that it's pretty, don't you think the, the outcome of this inquiry is probably already determined? Well, I think it is signaling, and China is trying to, again, apply pressure on a major U.S. producer of chips to try to signal to the U.S. government that it can retaliate against us. Frankly, I think all chip companies need to start taking a hard look at their business in China and realizing that that is ultimately going to get cut off. It's just a question of time. 
And this is really inevitable when you think about China's push for its own independence in both design and manufacturing of chips. So really unfortunate for Micron, but probably Intel and, and many other companies should be looking at their business in China with a very, very hard look. And China has a, a memory chip industry. This, this is just about reallocating the buyers and the sellers. And all the buyers and the sellers for China are going to be the same. And all the buyers and sellers in the West are going to be a different set of buyers and sellers. It just seems to me this is what decoupling means. Yeah, so YMTC is one of the big memory providers slash memory chip providers. It has been coming under significant pressure as well because of export controls targeting it. It has slashed production by up to 70% in recent months. So we are definitely succeeding in crippling China's manufacturing, particularly at advanced nodes, but even beyond that. So that is a huge success of the U.S. policy in the last year. But look, they'll continue to make progress. And the other piece of news that we have in our stack here is that Huawei's earnings have shown a big profits decline since 2011, but the revenue is pretty much flat and not falling. And that one of the reasons for that is that while their 5G business has basically cratered, their cloud compute business is actually very healthy and expanding in Latin America and Europe and, and other places. And that's because on the chip side, we have not gone after their chips that are used in those types of businesses. We restricted the export control measures to 5G in the Huawei case. So there's still big holes in the export control policy. And certainly companies are still able to procure chips or, or manufacture chips when they need to, but not in the volumes that they've had in the past. Did you take a look at South Korea's new K-chips Act, which is supposed to be making sure that their chip industry, which is pretty healthy right now, continues to get investment? Yeah, so this is part of the trend. Obviously, we've had the Chips and Science Act passed here in the U.S. last year with big subsidies for the semiconductor industry. Europe is working on their own Chips Act. South Korea has just followed through on theirs. Theirs is actually pretty limited. It does not provide direct subsidies to their big chip making companies, particularly Samsung but and, and SK Hynix. But it is providing significant tax breaks to those companies, again, to make them much more competitive going forward. And uh, you know, every little bit helps uh, in terms of incentives to diversify manufacturing away from China and, frankly, Taiwan given the geopolitical challenges we may see with Taiwan this decade and bring manufacturing to Korea, to Japan, to Singapore, to U.S., Europe, and elsewhere. Okay, Winona, the North Koreans, you know, from being kind of bad at hacking, I don't think the Sony hack was particularly creative. Can I disagree with you completely, Stuart? I think the North Koreans are... I think the North Koreans are the best at cyber in terms of being the most innovative. Not necessarily the best technically, although they've done no, some I, pretty I, remarkable things. I was going to give them credit for this. I, I just okay. think they've gotten a lot better since the Sony days. I, I think uh, they've always uh, been very good. Sony was really innovative, not technically, but in terms of the, the dump and leak uh, yeah. psychological okay. pressure that preceded the DNC hack by several years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's <laughs> new in North Korean innovation in cyber attacks? Yeah, Dimitri stole my thunder. I was going to say that I think they're actually some of the, you know, most improved over the last decade, right? And yep. they punching above to, their weight. Yeah. They, 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 they may be. Well, look, their, their system is the system that the East Germans used to create, you know, gold medal winning swim teams. They just pick the 
15-year-olds who are best at this, move them all to the capital, give them better food than anybody else in the country gets, and says you can keep doing this as long as you continue to deliver on the cyber front. Or, you know, around the world, outposts in northern China and whatnot. But yeah, so this operation in particular, the one that we want to talk about, the Mandiant Report, has two particular notable tactics. For one, they're using cryptocurrency, surprise, surprise, but in a new way now, also to launder money. So it's hash rental and cloud mining services, which they'll take stolen cryptocurrency, buy a hash mining rig, and then mine new cryptocurrency and put that new cryptocurrency in a completely different wallet. So kind of like a crypto mixing operation, except a completely different set of services. So once you've bought and, 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 and crypto- I assume you lose a fair amount in that process, that it's so expensive these days to do mining, that investing in mining may not be a great idea unless you're putting in dirty money and getting out clean. Sure, but I think that that was also a sunk cost that the North Koreans were willing to have with previous operations. So if you look at all of the various money mule tactics, the various cash out tactics that they've used for bank heists, I think that that's just been something they've been willing to give up to get that revenue. But so not just are they using crypto in a new interesting way, but you're seeing a a repeat of long-term rapport building, phishing, and social engineering, which is pretty similar to their operations back in 2021, where they were targeting getting vulnerability researchers basically saying, hey, I have a bunch of interesting work. Can we collaborate with each other and then infect their machines, steal whatever interesting secrets? Last time it was vulnerability researchers. This time it's think tanks for North Korea related policies. Yeah. And after they've built up a relationship with this person, they send them the malware. Well, one of the other things that, that happened this week on this front is that, oh, this past week, I should say, is that when much of the media was breathlessly covering these Vulcan documents from Russia of a, of a contracted the Russian intelligence service that really didn't show a whole lot beyond what we already knew about Russian intelligence services, the North Koreans launched one of the most impressive cyber attacks in recent years with this 3CX desktop phone software that they trojanized, uh, similar to the way the Russians had done with SolarWinds. And this is about 600,000 customers, potentially, that could have been compromised through a malicious update that was released to the software. So much of the InfoSec community was really dealing with a pretty innovative and, and complex attack from North Koreans over the last couple of weeks while the media is obsessed with uh, pretty mundane and, and deeply uninteresting documents from Vulcan. Yeah, and if I could even jump in, I think that going back to the North Korea MVP most improved player narrative, I think there's a lot of things that the US government is trying to do in this space. I mean, even just going back to the crypto point, sanctioning Tornado Cash and other types of mixers, it's clear that North Korea is diversifying their tactics and still continuing to get these wins in this space. Yeah. I'm not sure how much longer that they can keep finding ways to launder those funds. It is getting, it's much more traceable than anybody thought. And Treasury has begun to make it pretty hard to run mixers, pretty hard to disguise the origin of your stolen cryptocurrency. I just wonder whether they are acquiring a lot of it, but having more and more trouble actually using it. And we, with luck, that's what we'll see in this area. Okay, well, I guess it wouldn't be a Monday if we didn't talk about TikTok, although I'm not sure how much is new after the hearings. I guess what is new is I'm seeing opposition to the Restrict Act, which looked like it was going to be the odds-on favorite. You know, it had Biden administration support. It had bipartisan support from more than a dozen senators. You kind of thought, well, how could this 
fail. And uh, we're starting to see Republican House concerns about this. Tucker Carlson had a long and I thought not very well informed attack on the on the act. But it looks like we're having at least some pushback on the Restrict Act. Well, I think that the the act still, I think, has an incredible chances of, of getting passed. The administration is solely behind it. I was at an event last week with Lisa Monica where she spoke with a full throat endorsement of, of the Justice Department of this act and particularly of, of restricting TikTok. So I think the political push is, is there. Every, every day we're seeing more and more news coming out. There was just a story over the weekend about another Chinese app, this time an e-commerce app on an Android platform was actually attempting to steal data from other apps. Mm-hmm. So this idea that Chinese apps are, are safe and, and this concern is purely theoretical has always been nonsense. But honestly, like one of the things that I think is still not great in terms of rhetoric about TikTok is, is real misunderstanding understanding what the real issue is. So much of the focus is on data collection and privacy. And to the extent that there is pushback from the InfoSec community and sort of the ACLU, EFF community, I think it's a fair feedback in that, well, you know, if you're going to worry about privacy, why not worry about privacy with Meta and other big platforms that we have here in the U.S. as well? And I think the privacy thing is almost a distraction. Our, our good friend Patrick Gray from Risky Business really articulated this really well, that TikTok is essentially a media company, a media company that is owned by a company in an aggressive regime that is antagonistic to our interests. So would we let a Chinese company, for example, buy the New York Times or buy Fox News or buy CNN? Absolutely not. Even if there's no evidence that they have intention to use it for spreading malign influence, right? We would just not let, frankly, any country, even an ally country, own a major outlet that has this type of reach, you know, by TikTok's own numbers, 150 million Americans. We would never I, I, let the if Canadians I remember, have Rupert it. Rupert Murdoch had to change his nationality, he had, to, had to become an American citizen in order to own and run Fox News. That's right. For very good reasons, this has been our policy for many, many decades. And TikTok, you know, when you look at it through that prism, the case becomes very, very simple. And it's not about what it is doing. It's not about the privacy concerns. It's about the fact that as a platform, media platform with this much influence, we should not let any foreign countries, uh, and certainly not antagonistic ones, control it. Yeah, I agree on principle, but not necessarily on implementation, right? So completely agree when you're talking about a foreign adversary country owning a media company in the United States with as much influence as TikTok has. But when you're getting down to brass tacks of implementation, like that's what CFIUS is meant to do. That's what divestiture is meant to do. When you're talking about, I think, uh, Stuart, you had mentioned AIBA on a, on a previous episode. Those are well-known, well-trodden implementation mechanisms for getting concerns of a national security nature out in terms of balancing businesses with the national security nature, right? Giving Congress the power to outright ban an app, I think, is a completely different set of uh, equities and questions. So Restrict Act doesn't do that, right? It does not ban apps. And I, I do a lot of CFIUS work, and CFIUS has a, a big hole in it, which is if you build your business from the ground up inside the United States, there's no obvious civious jurisdiction. It happens in this case that there was an acquisition of a company that did business in the U.S. musically, but that's just a happenstance. And the new apps that are coming along are not going to make that mistake. So if you, if you think there's a problem 
with the fact of these apps in the ecosystem for social media, then you're not really going to address it with Cepheus. With IEPA, almost everything on a social media app could be characterized as an information service, and IEPA has an express statutory exemption so that you can't control informational materials. So my guess is the reason that the administration likes this is it fills holes that they've been very conscious of over the last two or three years in dealing with some of the the Chinese penetration of our IT ecosystem. All right, let's talk AI. I, we, we, we're never going to escape talking about AI uh, on this podcast, but this is AI that does security. Dimitri, have you looked at the Microsoft Security Copilot, which is supposed to basically bring GPT-4 to cybersecurity and allow you to, you know, use a variety of prompts to see what's happening on your system that might be a security risk. That's at least what Microsoft is selling it as. Does it actually work? Yeah, so there's a lot of hype with regards to AI and cybersecurity. And frankly, I think AI is a revolutionary technology that is going to change our way of life in pretty dramatic ways. But I think cybersecurity, both on defense and offense, is going to be the smallest beneficiary of this technology. I think it's where it applies the least. But when you look at this particular usage of GPT-4 by Microsoft, it's actually a good one. It is focusing on the key areas where we have cybersecurity challenges and where automation and particularly GPT-4 style large language model driven automation can be helpful, which is to better explain alerts that customers are getting using GPT-4 to provide sort of a you know, query response type of process where you, know, you get something that's unintelligible from your product and, and you want to figure out what it means and what to do next. That is a perfect use of a, a GPT-4 chatbot type of process. And the other way in, in which I think chat GPT type of models are going to be helpful is reducing the overall number of alerts and prioritizing those alerts that humans will have to deal with going forward. So it's not going to be groundbreaking. It's not going to solve all of our cybersecurity challenges, but it's going to make humans, people working in the cyber field more efficient. And that's always a good thing. Yeah. So the thing I don't understand about this, what Copilot ought to be able to do is it ought to be able to look at all of the data that Microsoft is collecting about attacks around the world, and they've got sensors out that tell you what what's going on. And then, of course, you've got a bunch of security measures on your own network. And ideally, Copilot takes account of what's on your network and what it's seeing from Microsoft's sensors and combines them to tell you things that are going on that you should be particularly worried about. What I am not sure about is how you can reassure IBM or Ford Motor Company that the data that's on their system about what's happening on their system is not somehow leaking out into the engine in a way that will start to be reflected in other people's security co-pilot results. That's a great question. I think the, the, the key way you do this, and the only way probably you, you can do this, is by restricting the, the data, the type of data that you feed into it. So anything that's customer identifiable, proprietary, you just cannot use in your training models because of the concerns around leakage. Yeah. Okay, I've got three or four stories I want to clean up, and if you want to comment on them, please do. The European reaction to AI is exactly what you would have expected. 
oh my God, the Americans are ahead of us. Quick, let's regulate it. The Italian privacy regulator has said, we're banning chat GPT because we think it must have collected and stored data without proper permission. It's dealing with minors who might actually use ChatGPT. And there was at least one breach that allowed people access to some of the, the prompts people were using, if I remember right. And ChatGPT- Stuart, this is the equivalent of banning computers when they showed up, personal computers in yeah. the late 1970s and early 80s because of concerns about malign behavior that people can use them for. I mean, it is so myopic and frankly, any country that is not putting their foot on the gas on this technology is going to be left behind in the next 10, 20 years. And that includes, by the way, China, who is very concerned about ability to use AI to circumvent their control of their population. Yeah, so right. I've seen some of the the artwork that AI has produced in China that includes Winnie the Pooh meeting with Xi Jinping. You know, a very, very bad thing to do. Shame on you, uh, Chinese AI. Yeah, I, I kind of think that that's right. But the success of GDPR in at least in extracting large sums from American companies and getting mindshare for European regulators has probably left people in Europe thinking, well, yeah, all we need to do is adopt a regulation and then start punishing people. But the first thing that, that ChatGPT said was, fine, we're not going to make this available in Italy. Maybe that'll solve the problem. Yeah, Italy is just not that big of enough market. And frankly, GDPR, I think, has had a significant impact, negative impact on the Europeans. Because let me tell you, startups I talk to that are looking at go-to-market opportunities where to launch their products first are looking at Europe last because of the cost of compliance with GDPR and data localization that is not necessarily part directly of GDPR, but is being interpreted that way by European companies. And lots of companies are saying, you know what, it's just not worth it. Let me go to Japan, let me go to Australia, let me go to Singapore and other places where it's a lot easier to sell my products and I'll eventually get around to, to selling in Europe. And as a result, Europe is not getting the best and latest technologies right away. Yeah, and especially if, if, if the work is done in the States, I, I wonder whether you can actually say with certainty that personal data of Europeans is present in the training data. Somebody's going to have to do a lot of work to figure that out, that the, the individual quote-unquote victims of unauthorized processing are not going to identify themselves. So yeah, I think it could take a while before there really is a regulatory handle for, for Europe. Okay, so what do you think about the letter that everybody other than OpenAI sent saying, this will probably reveal my prejudices, gee, we think OpenAI should stop for six months while we figure out whether it's safe. I recognize there really are some, some risks with AI being developed very quickly, but the people who do AI safety have left me so unimpressed. And the, the way in which this was rolled out kind of some vague idea will wait and will understand safety in six months by people who are competing with open AI left me thinking that that whole open letter, it's its not exactly an Asilomar moment. Yeah, absolutely not. And, and honestly, this is not going to stop the race. There's lots of companies working on this and anyone with access to resources or large compute is going to be able to build these types of models. Obviously, it's going to take a lot of resources at this point, but you're just not going to stop this progress. I think where we should be much more concerned is in the deep integration of humans and AI technology through implants and the like that really alter 
what it means to be human. But in terms of these models, they're going to continue to evolve and get better. I think what we need to do is, is maybe direct them to be more specialized to solving the tasks that are actually going to improve the human conditions. So for example, more protein folding to develop new drug treatments and the like, and perhaps less chatbots that are potentially a big waste of time. Yeah, it was a big waste of time, except it was a great marketing moment, right? It Suddenly you're, you're having a conversation, you're reading stuff that you know was produced in 30 seconds by a machine. And you say, God, if they can do that, what can't they do? And it, it was an iPhone moment. Everybody said, Oh, I, I'm sure I could use that. I, I was a bit flippant. They're not, they're not useless, but certainly there's been a lot of waste of time playing with them over the last few months. Yeah, and I mean, I think that focusing on OpenAI as a company completely negates the fact that a lot of the large language models are, are being open sourced, right? So you see Meta that released Llama and then said that they were only going to give the weights to researchers, but then the weights ended up on BitTorrent. And so now really anybody with enough compute can download the weights and the language model, but now none of the safeguards. So really is the problem here a single company that already has a trust and safety team, weights, balances put in, or is it going to be the wider use Cases. Well, and this is this unfortunately is why, where, to my mind, the AI safety people have discredited themselves. I really don't care. I'm sure that the Facebook version would have gotten everybody's pronouns right, but I don't care. It doesn't bother me that somebody can develop one that gets people's pronouns wrong. And so, if that's what safety means, you know, it's not the end of the world to have unsafe products kicking around. That's not, I hope, what people really mean by safety. But unfortunately, in Silicon Valley, that does seem to be what they're what they're selling. This is a story that I'm sorry Nick Weaver is not here for, because it's a big, big story. And that is the CFTC has filed a complaint against Binance, which is by far the biggest, especially now that FTX has gone down in a welter of indictments, it's by far the biggest exchange. And it has always said, you know, we have a unit that does business in the United States, but the really big part of our exchange, we don't do business in the United States. And the CFTC just pants them with this complaint. It's worth reading because the CFTC makes a very strong argument that Binance deliberately flouted the law and they have the receipts, the indication that there's a deliberate campaign to hide or obfuscate where even where the headquarters of Binance is to tell the users, the U.S. users, who are not supposed to be using the international version of Binance, that, oh, well, why don't you use a VPN to log on to your account? And then we can pretend that we don't know that you're in the United States. Uh, and, and, you know, you might think that's an exaggeration, but there are messages. I mean, this was a remarkable piece of law enforcement. They got access to a bunch of signal messages of the compliance officers talking to each other about how, yeah, Hamas and Hezbollah are using our accounts, but we don't let them use them for too much. You can barely buy an AK-47 with 600 bucks, which is a direct quote from one of the compliance officers. And then the compliance officer is talking about a bunch of Russian customers, and he says, oh, well, like, come on, they're here for crime. And the response from one of the compliance officers was to say, yeah, we see the bad, but we close two eyes. It's just, you know, when you've got evidence like that, it's 
impossible to believe that there aren't going to be lots of criminal indictments to follow. This is a big deal for the biggest player in cryptocurrency. The really interesting, and this is my last point, the side note of interest is that this is the CFTC using the data that it was able to get to say, we're filing this because cryptocurrency is really a commodity and we regulate it. And the SEC is going to have to say, I'm sure it has been saying, well, no, no, they're all securities practically. But it would be a little awkward for the SEC to intervene in this lawsuit to say, yeah, yeah, Binance is really bad, but they're bad because we regulate them and they've, they've been defying us. So I don't know how this plays out. Maybe CFTC, by getting its blows in early, gets to claim that it regulates uh, cryptocurrency. So that's a side note. This is, this is going to go on for a while, and it's just ugly for the entire cryptocurrency world. Stuart, I'm, I'm just absolutely in shock that there's shenanigans going on in the crypto <laughs> space. I mean, who could have imagined? But the interesting thing here is that, as you mentioned, the CFTC is the regulator here that's discovered all this activity. And ironically, for a long time now, the crypto community has been asking for the CFTC to be the regulator, not the SEC, hoping that they'll be much more lenient and will have fewer resources to do these types of investigations. May not have been the best bet. Yeah, yeah. And I should say, the CEO of Binance has a response on the Binance blog, which you can read to see if that helps you see their point of view. Is it as quotable as some of the parts of the indictment? No, I feel like it's my not. That's the is, problem. <laughs> I has no confidence in our geofencing, I think is yeah, my favorite. Yeah, what, what is that? Is, <laughs> is, is that cat grammar, right? Yeah. <laughs> I has no confidence. <laughs> yeah, very sad. Okay, and the last thing I just wanted to flag, I haven't read it, but it sounds pretty interesting flagged in lawfare. Alex Josky has written a book called Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. He is with the Australian Aspie, I think, which has produced a lot of pretty China skeptical reports. And this one basically says that the Ministry of State Security in China had mounted an, a really successful propaganda and influence campaign in which they uh, kind of remarkably slowly took over and fully corrupted the Soros-funded Democracy Foundation in China and that they had put their agents of influence on many, if not all, of the mechanisms by which out-of-government experts keep tabs on thinking in China, and that the whole point of this was to persuade the United States that China was committed to a quote-unquote peaceful rise, which we God knows we heard a lot of that from about 2005 to 2016. And Joski's point, which he has a fair amount of support for, is this was always a scam. They've been fooling people quite deliberately, and they succeeded basically until Trump came along and kicked over the entire bucket. Um, well, they're still it, succeeding, Stuart, because you, you see all this pushback even today from the elites here in Washington and, and elsewhere around the country saying, what is this all, all this China bashing about? You know, we should be helping China rise peacefully and so forth. And you still have plenty of people in media and, and foreign policy sort of establishment community that are, that are pushing that narrative, even though it's been utterly discredited. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, China can still rise peacefully if they want to. We're just not going to help. That's fair. I mean, I'll, I'll say that there's a huge difference between Chinese people and the CCP, right? And I think that there are some parts of the FBI that targeted more one than the other. I also think that when you're talking about a, a regime, and I think Joski gets a little bit into this in, in his book, when you have a regime from Deng Xiaoping is saying, hide your strength, bide your time, domestically, one would think that the U.S. would have gotten the, the point a little bit sooner. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, and look, I, I, I don't buy, well, the FBI was probably racist n- narrative either. The FBI has a particular problem in that, you know, the Chinese government believes that you owe them loyalty and allegiance if your grandparents came from China. It's, it's about as profoundly racist a philosophy as exists on the world stage. But if that's their, the way they go to recruit people, you have to be particularly worried if you're the FBI from a a counterintelligence point of view, if you're dealing with people whose grandparents came from China. And that sounds bad for the FBI to say it. And I don't think the FBI likes being in that position, but they have to recognize the recruiting strategy that the Chinese government has, which is, hey, you're ours. Sure. I think that that's a total, totally valid point. I just think that sometimes it's a hard line to walk. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that is the last of our stories. Thanks to Dimitri. Thanks to Winona. Just a quick note for listeners. We've had a great sound engineer for the last couple of years, Mark Chanasik. He is going to end up as a lawyer sometime this summer, and I can't afford his new hourly rates. So if you're interested in joining the Cyberlaw podcast as an intern to work on its sound editing, it is not a geographically constrained position. Get your CV warmed up and send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll start looking at people who want it pick up this summer as interns. Or you could just leave us a review and we'll read that on the air too. This has been episode 451 of the Cyber Law Podcast. I has no confidence.